Hi, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development with our Educators podcast, and I'm delighted to have Stormy Stark here with us, who actually is in a storm right now, so we really appreciate her being with us on the podcast. She's an educational consultant. She's got her PhD in educational leadership, so we're delighted to have you with us here today. Stormy, hi. It's good to be here. Thank you for asking me. Stormy, what I'd love to do is to hear from you about your consulting that you do as an educational consultant and hear about your PhD that you did as well in educational leadership. So why don't we start with what you're doing now and who you work with? So I tend to work with two different groups of people. Um, One is usually adults. And what they um, asked me to do is come in and talk to them about team building and how to build effective teams Um, looking for who's going to be that leader, how you're going to manage your team, how you communicate, because leadership is all about communication. I don't care what anybody says. If you can't communicate with people and talk to them, um, you're kind of stuck. You're you're just stopped right away. So I I come in and, and look at functioning teams and say, let me see what's going on. How can we make you better and how can we make you a really high performing team and get the people who you want to get into leadership roles where you need them to be? So I do that with adults. And then um, my expertise with my PhD is in rural education. So I work with a lot of kids in rural areas, um, try and kind of uh, translate is is sort of how I describe it to folks. I try and tell them um, this is why certain things happen in education. Um, why is this happening to my child or what's going on? How do, I, how do I best work for their educational needs? So I kind of translate what educational policy is into everyday language and then try and figure out how to help the family and the student succeed because we've got a lot of kids in rural areas who may be first-generation college students. Um, they may not have had parents who graduated from high school. They don't understand how to complete financial aid, how to do college applications, how to get where they want to be, and they're kind of stuck. And so I kind of open up the doors for them and say, this is, this is, how, this is where you are, this is where you want to go, let me show you how to get there. And I kind of coach them up to get there. Awesome. Now, you said very strongly leadership is all about communication. Anyone who says any different just doesn't understand. So tell us more about that and why you think that. Um. Almost always when I walk in when somebody, because usually people don't, don't call um, or don't ask for a leadership consultant or, or um, don't really figure out what's going on until they call me when they realize there's a problem. Um, and, and I come in and usually what I say is I, I want to talk to everybody in the organization or everybody on the team before I can make any assessment. And I want to hear everything that's going on and almost always I hear people say my boss thinks this is what I'm doing this is what's actually happening the leader of our team thinks that this should take X amount of time here's how much time it actually takes me and when I sit down and I say have you guys had the conversation of do you understand what I'm doing do you understand what I need you to do Um, usually people say well no because we've been working together so long, I just assumed that this is what it would take, or the last person that had this role, this is how long it took, or our last leader, this is how they handled it, and I don't understand why it's a problem. And a lot of times, it all boils down to 
a miscommunication or a misunderstanding or a generational communication issue that once everybody comes in the room and you say, I want you to take your, your feelings aside for a minute. I want you to just talk about the work we're trying to accomplish. What's the goal and how do we get there? That a, a lot of it gets smoothed out much, much more quickly. Um, and some of that is having people not talk. One of the first things I do is ask everybody to be quiet and have them do some exercises where they don't speak. Um, and they have to work together without talking, without making any noise, without writing anything down, figure out how to communicate through body language because they don't sometimes understand that um, gestures are important, eye contact is important. Um, one thing that I watched one leader do for an entire day and I finally said, um, do you know you never said thank you? And he said, my staff knows I appreciate them. I buy them lunch every Friday. I do all these great things. They get paid vacations. They get all these times. And I said, but sometimes just hearing somebody say, thank you. I see you. I hear you. And I appreciate you goes a long way. And that's what his staff was feeling. They didn't feel appreciated. They knew that he cared about what they did. They just, they needed to every once in a while hear thank you. You did a good job. And it wasn't every five minutes, but it was important to them. And that's, I think sometimes leaders get caught up in um, everything they have to do because as a leader, you've got a lot of weight on your shoulders. You're trying to keep everything going, everybody happy, everybody safe, everybody calm. And you, you're so focused on that that sometimes you forget um, the politeness, the niceness, the, the things that are important to people. And um, you think you're doing it because you think I'm meeting all of their needs. I'm making sure they're well paid. I'm making sure they're fed. I'm making sure they've got breaks. But they just need to hear from you. And that's, um, that was a lesson that one of my professors taught me a long, long time ago. And it has always served me very well. So, Dr. Stormy, in your PhD, what was your focus of your PhD? I know it's educational leadership, but what key areas did you work on? So I focused specifically on rural education. That was the thing that was the most important to me. And um, in the part of Virginia I live in, I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains, right near the Shenandoah National Park. And so when the park was built in the early 1900s, uh, there were a lot of families that had lived up on the park. There were about 500 people in the one area I live in that were, I'm sorry, 500 families that were moved off of the, the mountains down into um, a flatland area and relocated. And they were made certain promises by the state government, the federal government, um, by all kinds of people that didn't hold up. And so what that's created for about 125 years now is a sense of distrust and um, lack of understanding and major concerns and the education wasn't balanced. So I focused specifically on rural education and especially um, helping children in the Appalachian region reach their full educational potential. Okay. And during your studies, is there a model that you used or you built to base your work on? Uh, <laughs> um, 
I am a very, very, very intense qualitative researcher. Um, I can do quantitative research. Um, I, um, I'm an expert in, in spreadsheets and things like that and databases, so I understand quantitative stuff, but I found that when I really started working, um, qualitative research felt better to me, and um, I, I kind of got it, and it, it just all made sense, and I, I'll be honest, um, and I found that this has been a lot of graduate students' experience, uh, so um, I, I, I feel like it's kind of important to share with your students. I started out thinking I would do a phenomenology, um, which it, just briefly for folks who've never heard of it, um, is the study of kind of a phenomenon that is applied to a group of people. So maybe um, Sherpas or Native Americans um, or the rural population I had, the mountain children I had. Um, it, my, it turned out it didn't, my qualitative research didn't fall under um, phenomenology. Then I thought I would do a, an ethnography and kind of look at the cultural study. Didn't quite fall under that either. Um, I knew I didn't want to do grounded theory. Um, I have a, a particular distaste for grounded theory. I, I have the utmost respect for researchers who focus on that, but um, it's just not my forte. And I think, I, I personally think every researcher kind of finds their niche. What worked best for me was narrative inquiry. Narrative inquiry and case study kind of blended and created um, my research and worked very, very well. So to make a, um, a qualitative research project work really well, and this is important for our master's students who are going to be doing their investigation using a qualitative method and interviewing individual people, what do you think would be... Um, two or three points of success for them to make sure they remember to make it a successful qualitative um, implementation, you know, in the interviews? What do they really need to do? There are um, a handful of things I think are important. Um, the, the first thing you have to do um, and I know you just asked me about qualitative because I, I very um, explicitly said I'm a hardcore um, qualitative researcher. But I think no matter what research you're doing, and, and I feel like this is a message every grad student needs to hear in the world, the number one thing you do always, 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 is protect the integrity of your data. It doesn't matter if you've got a, a spreadsheet, a database, interviews from people, whatever it is, your job is to make sure that that data um, has its complete integrity. That's what a good researcher does. So you always make sure that the data is accurate, that it's a fair representation of what people told you or what you found, and that it's um, safe and secure. So that's kind of my first rule always. My second rule is to make sure that you um, are accurately replicating your study. So when you do that, you want to make sure you ask the same questions every time. When you put together an interview, it's 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 frightening the first time. It is scary because you're you're going in to meet people and you're asking them personal questions a lot of times and you don't know what the response is going to be and you're trying to collect all of your information and make sure it's it's accurate and complete and you're trying to think of what you're going to do with it. Put all of that aside for a minute. Before you ever start, make sure you have your list of research questions. Have them out. 
and then give the person that you're interviewing with your full focus because they're going to tell you their story and you want to capture their story. So it's important to make sure that you ask the same set of questions for every single person, but that you pay very close attention to what they're telling you because every person is not going to have exactly the same answer for you. The third thing I will tell you is people are going to tell you, make sure you transcribe every interview and you type it out and you make sure it's exactly correct with the pauses and any errs and M's and every single thing they put in there. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. If you possibly can, record the person speaking. Ask them for their permission. Make sure you're very cautious with it and careful with them. Tell them anything you're going to do with it. I might use this in a presentation. Is that okay? Um, I'm going to share this with my professors. Is that okay? The reason I say record their voices is because their story is so much more powerful in their voice. Um, and the example I will give you for that is that um, one of the women I interviewed talked to me about living in a cabin up on the mountains in the land that the park was built on. And she said, when they moved us out, we were walking out and she said, I was five years old. And I still remember this. She said, my mother said, oh, I forgot something. And she turned around to walk back in the cabin and get it. And they had already set the cabin on fire because they were burning them to the ground to build the park. And saying that, I just saw your face kind of get more expressive. It's saying that is powerful. Hearing it in her voice, her remembering that as a child, that now she's a, an elderly woman, was it's it's the most impactful thing I've I've ever had and when I had people listen to it they said wow that that's her that's her life that's what happened to her and I said yes and I can share that but being able to let you hear it and her words is so powerful and so important um, I think as a researcher your job is to share people's stories when you do qualitative research but make sure that you respect and honor and remember that you're talking about someone's life, their lived experiences. Mm, that's good. So we've got number one, protect the integrity of the data and fair representation. Number two, replication, same questions and give you a full focus. And number three, um, just get the permission to record so that you use the power of their expression for it. So that's brilliant. Absolutely. And then presenting it, um, you know, finding themes and trends and, you know, coming to the, the nuggets of wisdom by combining the stories together. What's the sort of process that you did to do that? Like the, the real actual physical process. Tell us about how you did that. So I collected um, several interviews, lots of interviews. Um, and remembering that some of my population was elderly and is no longer with us, I also collected um, letters and diaries and documentation, lots of it and um, ancestors and all that kind of information and put it all together. Once I had it all together, um, I honestly thought, and I, I, I've also found that a lot of my peers thought this in my cohort, um, I thought the hard part was going to be the data collection. I really did. I thought, oh, once I get that done, I write papers all the time. I've written papers for 15 years. This will not be hard. I was mistaken. Um, and, and don't hear me saying the writing is monumental and it's awful and you can't do it. That, that was not my experience at all. But once I had the data, there was so much of it. 
and it was all of it. I kept thinking, this is so good. This is so good. Um, I, I need this. I need this part. I need this part. I, what do, I don't even know what to do. Um, and that's where there are two things I think that, that helped me a lot. One, I was not afraid to contact my professors and my advisor. I had wonderful, wonderful faculty members who said, you know, reach out to me, call me, talk to me, come see me. And they were great about saying, you know, I think if we look at it, this is more important than this. So we can let that go. You can make that a paper that you present at a conference or write up somewhere, put it in a journal, focus on this instead. And that helped because at, at some point you're just, you're just sitting there with all this stuff and, and you're like, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to keep um, because it all feels valuable to you and you've worked hard to get it. That's, it's hard sometimes to get people to talk to you. Um, the other thing that I did was I went through and started coding. So um, my advisor told me one day, because I like to work on paper um, as much as I like to work with technology, sometimes I really like to work on paper. And she said, take a legal pad and just sit down surrounded by all your data and just start writing a list of words that you think are important. And I said, why are we doing this? And she said, you'll see. And I went through and I did it and I came back. She said, bring me the list. She looked at it the next day. She said, what about this, this, and this? She added three or four more words. And she said, now go back to your data, start highlighting anywhere in there where those words appear. What we were actually doing was coding the data. Right. But coding feels very, very overwhelming when you start reading about it. It seems very complicated. When somebody said, make a list of the, 10, 15 most important words to you, start looking for them. Those became my keywords. Then we're coding the data. Once I had it coded, it all became very simple because I took it then and looked at it and said, okay, so I actually wound up with, I think, 22 code words that were important to me. And then I kind of grouped them into four or five areas and used those to build sections of my paper and um, then built the chapters around them. I kind of used that as my table of contents, put my headings in, and then it all just flowed easily and nicely. Lovely. Really good. That's really powerful. Um, so our students that are doing their masters now, many of them come from different types of backgrounds. Um, and some of them, they will use the master's program to identify an area that they want to pursue. And that'll become their niche that they become the the expert in some of them will want to use this as a promotional ladder you know to step up to say i've got my masters some of them may want to pursue a phd so what would be one or two things you might say in terms of career advice during this stage of doing their masters to prepare them for the next step i would say um <sighs> there's so much stuff um, I, I think, first of all, if you, when you accomplish a master's degree, um, take a minute and be proud of what you've accomplished. Um, it's, it's a big deal. And um, I think to pause and say to yourself, I am now a master of this skill is big. So whether it's emergency management or educational leadership or whatever you choose to study, business, it's, it's important to stop and say, wow, I, I did this, um, and not immediately push yourself to what's the next thing. Um, so I think you need to take a minute and kind of celebrate what you achieved. That's my first thing career-wise. Um, my, my second thing to say is 
um, it is okay to realize that maybe what you researched in your master's degree is is not exactly what you want to do in a PhD or in your career. Um, my master's thesis was on um, technology in faculty in higher education and how they how they use technology. Um, and I totally switched when I got to Penn State. And I, and I knew I wanted to do something in rural areas, but I thought I was going to do rural technology. I have written about that. That's not what I decided I wanted to, to focus all of my studies on. So it's okay to say, um, wow, I got into my master's program and I took a class in this and I really, really, really love it. Um, maybe I want to, maybe I want to go this way a little bit. There are so many things that educational leadership and leadership encompass power, authority, policy, uh, school leadership, university leadership, um, ed, uh, emergency management in, in education. How do you handle some of those things? Um, COVID-19, how do you handle a response to that? Technology use, ethical use of technology in education, and what, how are we going to determine that? There are so many areas you can go into. So maybe you're taking an, a master's program because you want to be the head of a school or you want to be a principal. But it's okay to, to get there and say, you know, I really want to go a step further. Or what I really care about is this area instead. And look at it. Um, I think part of, of graduate school and these experiences is to um, find out what you're passionate about, but also find out what brings you joy. You're going to spend a lot of time doing research um, and working in an area. And if it doesn't bring you joy, it is not the right area for you um, because you will wind up frustrated and not a good and effective leader. And the, the number one thing you always want to do with leadership is remember that um, as a leader, people are watching you, even if you're just, a, a, not just, but a teacher leader as opposed to a, a principal or a head of a school. You know, if you're in a leadership role on a team in your school, people are watching you. And so you never want to get to a point where you think, I don't like what I'm doing. Then it's time to change your focus. And it's okay to change your focus. That's good. Dr. Stormy, I really want to thank you for your time, uh, obviously late at night there for you. Thank you for giving us your wisdom, sharing your experiences, particularly the process of, I think, the coding and the documentation and the research. I think that's going to be really valuable for us all. So thank you. Stay safe and I wish you the best. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.